0: Another episode of Acts of the Blood God and Independent RPG Podcast. I'm your host Cat Bailey, and joining me, as always, my lovely co-host Nadia Oxford. Hello, Cat.
1: I'm feeling spooky because, well, actually, by the time this episode's out, it'll be November first. Never mind. Sorry.
0: Halloween will be over.
1: Canceled. Halloween will be
0: over. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there was one year, well, I think it was in grade four, where I didn't have makeup. I was going as a rabbit. So I didn't have makeup. So I drew on my face with a magic marker, like the whiskers on the the nose. And then we had picture day the next day. And uh, that was the best thing I've ever done in my life.
0: I am very anti-Halloween. <laughs> are you really? Are you like the, the Christian woman who won't hand no, out No, no, it's fine. I, I like Halloween. But I don't like particularly wearing costumes or getting dressed up. I find it, it actually kind of stressful. But a lot of my friends are very into Halloween. So I just have to roll with it, unfortunately. <laughs> I actually went
1: to, I have a, a good friend who came to Toronto and we went to a Halloween thing that has set up at Casa Loma. So for all you Scott, Scott, Pilgrim fans out there, uh, I didn't go down the railing and turn to and explode in a cloud of money.
2: Unfortunately, <laughs> didn't have time. Every new week is a new Scott Pilgrim reference. It's magical. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and hey, it's our pal, Eric Van Allen, who also special announcement. Brand new co-host on Acts of the Blood Guide. Yep, Yay. Eric is joining the weekly cast of the pod full time. He'll also be on specials, and you know, lovely to have you, Eric. We were kind Indeed. of testing you out over the past month, see how things are going, and just really in. enjoy vibing with you. You bring a you know an interesting dynamic. You play a lot of RPGs that ne- we wouldn't necessarily have gotten around to, and it definitely uh, expands our repertoire heading into 2022.
2: I introduce yeah. chaos into this is what I bring. Oh, like, yeah. I, I feel like the number of bloopers that y'all have had post show now has really risen dramatically. <laughs> and I if that's that's what I'm here for. you definitely got me
0: laughing insanely for like <laughs> yeah. for at least a couple on a couple of occasions.
2: If that's what I'm bringing, then that's what I'm bringing. But I'm happy to be here. Um, you know, I am the youngin. I'm the young gun around here. Uh, yes. So I've actually my my plan is I'm building a backlog over the winter break to hit a bunch of stuff that I, as a young child, never got to. <laughs> so if y'all if y'all got child, some critical please. reading, so if y'all got some required reading, I'm gonna do my winter break homework and and get to work on that. But yeah, I mean, I. I, I I do tend to like the the Fallout New sees and the Vampire the Masquerades and stuff, so I'll try to bring a little bit of that the energy janky
0: stuff. Or you find the random indie RPG that we hadn't really been thinking about. So oh yeah,
2: I mean hey, I've got another one this week. Oh, I'm excited.
0: <laughs> but Eric also does Normandy FM, so he's very busy. So acts of the Blood God Normandy FM doing the handshake meme mm-hmm. right now.
2: I mean, we're doing final fantasy 10 right now over there uh, this week. We just got to the part where you fight Seymour Guado and that, that game still incredible. Like I bold claim. I don't think final fantasy has had big moments like that in a long, long time. Nope. The, the fight where Seymour brings up anima and you summon in Shiva and she does the diamond dust snap for the first time. It's just, it's incredibly hype. And Ooh, Final Fantasy X holds up 20 years later, holds up.
0: Well, speaking of hype, the PC RPG quest is continuing this week and we got a special guest. Yes, it's Audi who is a noted expert in the field of PC RPGs. He's on Digital Foundry and he has a lot to talk about when it comes to the PC 88, the MSX, all of that good stuff. We'll also be going through news, what we've been currently playing, and all of that wonderful stuff that we do on Acts of the Blood God. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter at the underscore capot. Nadi is at nadi oxford, and Eric is at c Moosey, s e a m o o s i, and we are on Twitter as well with Acts of the Blood God, Blood God Pod, bloodgodpod dot com is our website, and we have a Patreon, Patreon.com dot com slash bloodgodpod, where you can subscribe at the $5 level and get access to all of our episodes a week early and ad-free plus all of our bonus content. We're in the middle of our voting for the Pantheon of the Blood God, and it looks like Persona 5 might be the next game we do for the Pantheon. Very exciting. As I it kind should of wondered be. if it wouldn't be Infinite Space, but no. The, the Discord has spoken. The patrons have yeah. spoken. It's going to be Persona 5, I
1: think. I'm sorry it's not... Uh... Uh, the game you wanted, but you do like Persona Five,
0: so I was I was fine with Persona Five. I was yeah, also okay. fine with Steam World Heist for heaven's sake. That would have been a that would have been great. Right. Uh, yeah, I would have loved to do that. And just nobody is interested in us talking about Auto mm. Worlds. They're like, no,
2: <laughs> reject <laughs> that. That is maybe not a game that should go in the pantheon, and that's mm. probably why it's not getting in. But. Outer Worlds is a game, especially with the DLC, that I've consistently thought about going back to and seeing all the way through because it had some ideas. It had stuff going on.
0: And hey, just in just a couple days, we're going to have our Pantheon episode available for $10 subscribers. It's our exploration of Parasite Eve alongside Jeremy Parrish. So you get to see if Parasite Eve is worthy of the Pantheon. It was our horror-themed RPG episode, couple days after halloween but i digress whatever (laughs) Eh, what are you gonna do what are you gonna do okay it's time to talk about what we've been playing our sacrifices to the blood god and eric our brand new co-host we'll start with you
2: yeah so i i'm i'm doing the one two punch this week because last time i had dungeon encounters and we talked about how great dungeon encounters was uh this week i played through all the voice of cards uh, which is oh
0: the, boy there we
1: go
2: the other weirdo rpg <laughs> let me say that square enix <laughs> i am getting
1: that mixed stuff in my head a lot lately oh
2: so many people did i've got i've got a soapbox take about this that, that i'll get to in a moment but uh voice of cards for those who don't know is uh developed under um alim Alam. i'm not sure on the pronunciation uh over at square enix uh but the creative team is a lot of the folks that you've seen behind Near and Guard, so it's Yoko Taro, it's uh, uh, Fujisaka's on the character art right. and uh, Keiichi Okabe's on the music composition, uh, Saito is on production. A lot of the folks that you would recognize if you're a fan of those series. And it definitely, it has the flavor of a near. Mm. It has the scent, the whiff, you know, the the must <laughs> of a near. <laughs> but- the near spore yeah but at the end of the day what it really kind of is is a very straightforward basic rpg and i think this is the part that's going to i think they had trouble messaging this game because a lot of people see the card thing it's all made of cards everything's cards menus cards uh dialogue choices and dialogue windows are cards i mean literally when you boot the game up and you're loading up your save files and stuff you're picking cards up yeah it's so fun And it's a cool it's a cool concept. Um, It's something that really impresses you up front. And I think when I played the demo, I was just really wowed by the concept and the possibilities. And I think where I ultimately ended with it was that it was a good idea that never got beyond that initial wow, right? They had a cool idea and it felt like they didn't do enough with it in the end. You don't really see some interesting stuff until the end in terms of like using the cards. I don't want to get into spoilers because it is also a very, very short game. And honestly, that's one of its best selling points is that this is (laughs) I saw the whole thing through, including the true ending in about like 10, 11 hours. Like it did not take me long to beat this game, but it's very straightforward. It's very simple to play because it is an RPG. It's not a deck builder like a Slay the Spire. Yeah, yeah, Um, definitely not. And I think there's some interesting stuff that you do in terms of generating gems every turn that you can spend on higher power attacks. So trying to decide how you're going to use the resources that you have and every character can only hold a certain number of cards. So you're having to kind of balance elemental weaknesses, properties that you can achieve, bonuses that you can give yourself in order to overcome, in, you know, surmounting odds. Yeah. Typical RPG fare. But that's the thing is it is... It's an RPG. It, it 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 checks the boxes, but I don't think it did anything that like a Nier or a dragon guard would do, which is yeah, take it yeah. above and beyond. Um, and especially the story, I think it's a it's a good story, but I, everything about this game is just good, not great for me. Yeah, and yeah. uh, you know, I, I reviewed it a destructoid. I gave it about a seven point five. It's the most assured i felt about a score all year long where like i finished it and i was like that is exactly yep. how I of a seven. About this. yeah yeah like it was well, 7.5 it is above your average seven below your average eight
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> i actually tried the demo and i'm getting many of the same impressions you got like i'm still waffling if i should buy the full thing or not i feel like i would enjoy it but i don't feel like it's the crimson shroud successor i was kind of praying for that's for sure
2: yeah it's it's definitely not going to be like anything you know it's not the botan Kaitos spiritual successor which god let's get that in the works (laughs) where's that at uh but this kind of like segues into my larger thing about dungeon encounters and voice of cards because dungeon encounters is quickly becoming one of my favorites of the year um,
0: I might try it. I might cave. It,
2: Eric, it you is, love
0: this game. You've been talking about it like I, I have really, you talked about it three episodes in a row? Or was that just Nintendo Voice Chat that you were talking
2: about it? Uh, and NVC, I was also talking it up, But it's been one that I've been frustrated because it feels like Square's not marketing it a ton. Yeah. But also, it also feels like so this month they have Voice of Cards and they have Dungeon Encounters coming out like about week two weeks after each other. Um, and they're just kind of being sent out. They were kind of announced and then given a release date very soon afterwards. They're both uh, games that hail from incredible creators, but have no built-in franchise established stuff to work with. It's not like a Final Fantasy spinoff. It's just, hey, here's Dungeon Encounters. So my big brain thing, and I was sitting here ruminating on this the other day, is I wish Square had either put these two together or gone Ah. and got a third game, get some other creator that they've got over uh at square enix or a partner or something
1: someone in the lower rooms in the dungeons drag him out. get
2: get another because these games the 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 thing that's amazing is they're pretty small games you know they're they're both about 25 30 bucks i think voice of cards is is 29.99 i think uh, Dungeon Encounters is $24.99. But yeah. they're both kind of in that budget range. And I think if they had come out and said, here's this package we're doing. It's called the Square Enix Labs Collection. Ah. You got three incredible creators to work with the studio to make something new and refreshing to the RPG genre. You can buy each of them separately or you can get the whole volume collection together. And you're really building off this idea of, you look back at the PS1 and you had that Final Fantasy collection that had... um tactics oh, in another game in it i forgot yeah, what the other yeah game was. But there were a
1: couple of collections like the that anthology
2: the the anthology like,
1: and the chronicles
2: square used to do that and i think yeah. that works really well because now you can kind of go you know me you know joe rpg on the street <laughs> is going like yeah well this looks pretty cool and i'd be a fool not to buy the full collection that's a value <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and you can what get this stuff it's, it's going to like, you know, rising tide lifts all boats and, you know, people who want to get into this just for the Yoko Taro stuff can get that and then be like, hey, what's this dungeon encounters thing or vice versa? Yeah. I think it works a lot better. And instead, I feel like both of these are very interesting games. I clearly like one a little bit more than the other, but uh, they're really cool things that Square Enix is doing at a time where, you know, we've got Final Fantasy 14, Final Fantasy 16 is nebulous somewhere seven remake is nebulous somewhere we're going to talk about another square enix rpg that just got <laughs> announced in a moment but uh this could have been a really cool thing for them to put out there and be like we've been noodling on some stuff here's some creative things you might enjoy like really market it towards the switch because yeah. i think both of these games would i i did not play i'm playing dungeon encounters on the switch i did not play voice of cards on the switch but i i think the switch version would be absolutely perfect
1: yeah that's what I, that's what i played it on it's great it's it um, perfect for that
2: like, like get it a little bit more out there because I think th- this sort of thing from Square Enix is really exciting for me because it's them being experimental, letting their creators create something that they're really passionate about. And you can like even whether it's good or bad, you can tell there's passion in what's been made here and it's exciting to play as a player. So I, I think they are two really interesting games for RPG fans that just aren't getting the push that they deserve. So that's my soapbox take for the week.
1: <laughs> no, that's a good that's a good soapbox take because I think you're actually very right. I think that it would be. It, I, I feel like the two games are diminishing each other now that they've been released really so close together and they're by you know kind of almost independent like uh, projects by famous creators. And I think that the strength would have been to put them together as like, hey, classic legendary uh, developers with the just made some cool games for you to, to i just had to around with
2: every time i yell about dungeon encounters on twitter some new person is like what is this this looks amazing i've never heard of this and i'm uh-huh. like that's why i'm doing it because Keep someone's got to do it <laughs> that and wildermouth are my hills that i'm dying on this year good hills to die on yeah yeah uh and on top of the good decisions i made i also made a bad decision this week
0: oh dear eric why are you making bad decisions
2: I reinstalled Cyberpunk 20, 2077.
0: <laughs> Tim <laughs> Rogers, favorite game.
2: Yeah, no, uh, shout oh, I haven't seen to, those yet. <laughs> shout out to <laughs> Tim Rogers. I've been working my way through his uh, action button review, uh, which I opened up and was like, oh, wow, a one hour review. That's really short for Tim. Wow. I might actually get through that one night. As it turns out, as, as if you watch the series. That's because it's got kind of a choose-your-own-adventure style going on, and it's much, (laughs) much longer. (laughs) So I'm working through it, but I'm not reinstalling it because I think I'm going to like it. I'm reinstalling it because I want to see what a year has looked like in Mm. Cyberpunk, because they've been patching it. They've been adding some free content there's been a lot of talk about it again because the next gen versions are now pushed into 2022, uh, along with most of the updates they have for the rest of the year. Um, They, they pretty much said like everything we're not touching cyberpunk again until next year, which like it's the end of October. That makes sense. But uh, it, it did make me curious, you know, I played cyberpunk at launch, bounced off it, uh, but, but got pretty far into it anyways. But like, literally got up to the last mission and just didn't even want to close it out because I was just done with it at that point. (laughs) Uh, And part of me does just want to like start a new file and see what that game looks like on PC nowadays, because I've heard people say that it's it runs better. It's less buggy. It's closer to what you would envision a good version of this game looking like. But also that the problems that are in this game are maybe not necessarily patchable. They make are things, games, right. yeah. You, can you would ten. have you would have to break this game back down to its component parts. And one one direct thing I will lift from Tim here is that you have to think that like CD project Red had to make Witcher One and Witcher Two before they made Witcher Three. And even though I am a very big fan of The Witcher Two, um, I I can see some of that in this game. But I'm also just it's it's so much game it's there's so much <laughs> game in much it game. that it's so overwhelming and i've reinstalled it i've been messing with it and the more i've been playing it the more i've been thinking about how i love individual parts of it but all those individual parts can be found better in other places and it, it, it's just making me ruminate a lot on the state of triple a game development today yeah so maybe that's why i want to play it again is because it just makes me think it makes me ponder things while i'm like sitting there oh great we're doing this mission again there's another taxi cab that i gotta run off the road and take back to the ai taxi cab depot and here's a corpo dude calling me in the middle of an emotional side mission that i'm on and (laughs) (sighs) dude why aren't you at
1: work hey yeah my sister died no you should be here
2: I, I wrote that back at launch as the one thing I actually published. Uh, shout outs to uh RIP US gamer. <laughs> but um that I wish there was a silent mode on that phone because right. <laughs> it just will not stop ringing at the most inopportune times and it's still like does GTA that. 4. It's worse Rick than and GTA Roman 4. or
0: whatever was always like come on go play go bowling
1: go with play me. Bowling.
2: It, it's worse. It's genuinely worse.
0: <laughs> There's
1: no silent mode in the future. If,
2: if this game did not have so many other problems with it, people would be talking a lot about how every single time you try to do something in this game, somebody is calling you or, or messaging you. There's a very notable part in the first, uh, like like the, the climax slash finale to act one uh, where, you know, you get Keanu Reeves stuck in your head, that mission uh, where because the car chase takes you past a certain place it will always have you ring up the side quest dialogues during that. And it's during this very tense shootout where like your friend is dying in the backseat and you're leaning out the window, trying to like take out these drones. And then all of a sudden a fixer calls you up. And is like, Hey, saw you driving by, you know, I got a job for you. If you're not busy. And it like, uh, I-, I wish there was an option to risk. It would be funny if they had thought that through and been like, I'm kind of busy right now. But instead your character is like, Oh yeah, you know, I am looking to make some extra cash. I'm like what are you I doing? Think that, I think that is <laughs> if I survive,
0: cashable. It's <laughs>
2: patchable. Come on. Uh, I mean, that is, but just the general, like, everythingness of it, the fact that it is trying to be a GTA mm-hmm. and a Far Cry and right. a Deus Ex and, like, a and Valhalla, not Assassin's yeah. Creed Valhalla, like, Cyberpunk bartending sim Valhalla. Um, like, it's trying to be everything in a way that even GTA doesn't try to be everything. And it's. None of it really sticks. There's nothing that I can look at in this game and say it does better than anything else. But that's why it's fascinating to me. So
0: that's fair. I stand by my previous assertion that I will pick this game up when the next gen patch comes along and/or a new expansion. This Witcher Three,
2: mm-hmm. as
0: so many people love to say, kind of got good when the expansions came along.
2: Yeah, but, yeah, it could get there.
0: Nadia, what are you playing? I've been a
1: little bit um, kind of adrift this uh, this week, like uh, kind of in between games. I mentioned that I was playing the uh, Voice of Cards demo. Uh, What kind of pisses me off is that I'm thinking, "Oh, okay, I might download the game. I like it enough." But the demo information doesn't transfer over to the main game.
2: That kind of sucks. There is a reason. I mean, it's not even a spoiler. Like you, the demo for the game is basically like a prologue, and you don't play those characters in the main game. So.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. I like That, that.
2: That's why it does that. And I, I do think that format actually works out interestingly um, because those characters are still like major characters. There's a very famous RPG that y'all are going to remember right offhand where you play it and the previous game's party is like still figures in the wow. world that you are kind of like having to contend with. And you're like the scrappy-doo to their Scooby-Doo kind of. <laughs> um, I
1: know what you're talking about, but...
2: For the life of me, I can't remember the name, but I, yeah. do, I do know that what you're referencing. I mean, a lot of RPGs have done stuff like that, like, oh, here's the hero from a previous game. But in, in Voice of Cards, it is like the party that you play in the demo is trying to complete the same quest that your scrappy little band of, of miscreants is doing in in (laughs) voice of cards. And you're kind of always butting heads with them over it because they're, they're the scions of just the ivory order. And and they're like doing all things right and proper. And you're just like, man, I just want money. I just want cash. (laughs) I (laughs) want to kill the dragon and get the bounty.
1: (laughs) Scratching my crotch with my dagger. And they're over there like with their fancy robes and stuff. That actually, that sounds so Yoko Taro. I can't stand it. It it.
2: It is not without its charms.
1: Yeah, no, I am definitely going to cave on that and probably on uh, Dungeon Encounters as well. But for mm. now, I'm just doing a little bit of housekeeping uh, and walkers coming up. I am trying to make a weaver for level 80. I am trying to max out my ninja. And uh, yeah, it's a very kind of uh, uh, laid back week for
2: myself.
0: Y'all back on my nonsense. No, you didn't,
1: catch
2: It cat. took mm. so little time. It's not FIFA.
0: <laughs> oh, OK. That's even worse. It's,
2: it's football manager, isn't it? not football no? manager. Ooh. No.
0: After all my complaining about Super Robot Wars T, picked up Super oh. Robot Wars 30. I'm back, oh, congratulations. baby.
2: This is good I'm nonsense. Back. This, yeah, is, this happy is good nonsense. nonsense. Yeah. Y'all. How is
0: it? It's good. It's nice. really good. Good. It's the best Super Robot Wars I've played in years. Holy cow, I cannot believe it. Like, okay, first of all, the fact that I sprang for the premium sound version. Mm-hmm. Wow. It makes good such choice. a frickin' mm-hmm. difference having the upgraded music. Because when I was playing Super Robot Wars V on the Vita, I like went through the trouble of getting a lot of the uh, songs imported into that. But you could not do that on the Switch. So I was dealing with the kind of the basic soundtrack on the Switch version. It, was, it actually harmed the experience actively Ouch. because mm. the soundtrack wasn't as good. So I got the premium sound version on Steam. It's great. I'm playing it in 4K. Gorgeous. It looks absolutely fantastic. This one has Victory Gundam in it from the very start, and I haven't had a Victory Gundam since the late 90s. This series hasn't been in there, so it feels fresh and new in a way that SRWT simply did not. And they play around with the structure. Like You have this big capital ship that you can upgrade, and the way you upgrade these capital ships Uh, changes things like you can earn more money from killing enemies or you have you launch with more morale or that kind of thing so there are like some interesting decisions to be made in how you upgrade your actual battleship and of course you can upgrade the battleship itself to attack and everything and then also there's like an open-handed mission structure where you are like going around in an actual map and choosing the missions that you end up playing its very different.
2: Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: And I'm just going, wow, this, okay. This is terrific. Like the, the graphics are so much better. I am a big fan of the OG units. I'm into the mission uh, selection. It's bringing back a lot of the classic. It has a classic super robot wars vibe. It feels like I'm back on the PlayStation two, but also it's gorgeous. I'm really happy. I'm so sad that probably I'm going to have to noodle away at this game for like the next two years or whatever, because (laughs) I got to play other games like Persona 5. I got to finish Persona 5 finally. But yes, but Super Robot Wars 30 had like a concurrent, an all time peak concurrent of 17,000
2: on Steam
0: the other day. That's really good. That is really, really
2: good. Yeah, it was big enough that we
0: were talking about it over at IGN and people like going, oh, check out this thing. And I'm like. Catch the ambassador. So, most this is the most available the series has ever been in North America. Like it was in English with V, X, and T on the Switch. But this one is like straight up, you can just go on Steam, get the English version. It's great. Strongly recommend that you do it. It's a great entry point into the series. T isn't bad either, especially if you aren't as burned out on those on those particular <laughs> shows as I am, I was just really let down by like it's incorporation of like Cowboy Bebop and everything mm. that I've already mentioned. I'm still noodling my way through tea, by the way, I am on the second to last mission. And the second to last mission is absurd. It had me go through, I think three waves of bosses. Like I just, if- I like, I beat the giant, huge, insane boss. And I was like, okay, finally finish this mission. And then another boss showed up and I was like, Oh, by the way, if a unit attacks, a unit only gets one attack on this boss, and then they withdraw from the map.
2: Yeah. And so it's just what? like,
0: good lord! Okay. I mean, I <laughs> granted I picked the hard route, so still, still, that's, that's a lot of work. I was just like, okay, this game, it's it's making me work for it, but still. So I'm in a Super Robot Wars mood, y'all. It's a giant
1: robot. The mood.
0: game, the series that I've been playing for 15 years, pretty much nonstop. Just going straight from one game into the next. That is wow. That's what quite I've been exciting.
1: playing.
2: You're selling me on wanting to like finally get into this series though, because I like the big robot. But also, when you started talking about battleship upgrades and being able to like kind of open an admission structure, if you if you got one step further and said now the robots can date and kiss, then <laughs> then, <laughs> I, then I would be I'll buying play. it on Steam right now. You would see me on camera purchasing it on Steam, <laughs> polyamorous Gundam. The Finally. one thing
0: about uh, Super Robot Wars is if you like mecha anime, there's so many secrets and Easter eggs and interesting things to find, uh, interesting paths to unlock. Uh, there's a lot There's a lot to this series, actually. And this is the 30th anniversary celebration of the series that originally came out on Game Boy in 1991, so long ago. And you just had uh-huh. Mazinger and Getter robo and the original Gundam. And it seems like they're going a little bit extra with this particular entry showing some love to the series that is now 30 years old and you know what i'm here for it it's been too long all right let's continue on to the news and our top story there was a state of play it was mostly forgettable except wait a minute square enix tries surely we're getting a new valkyrie profile ro- announcement <laughs> surely we're getting i don't know final fantasy 16 or something no, it's another <laughs> Star Ocean. What am I kidding? When I saw the Tri-Ace logo, my heart jumped for you, Kat. Uh, I saw the Trias logo and I knew instantly that it would be a Star Ocean game. Come on. <laughs> they're never making a Valkyrie profile.
1: Are you serious? You don't know, the, like Star Ocean. That's another example of them resurrecting an old franchise the way they did it with ActRaiser. So I'm, I'm Good up for them. whatever they're selling here. I, mm, Star Ocean you,
0: just came out recently. It's not been resurrected true. by any stretch yeah. of the
2: imagination. They're picking the dead body up so they can hit it better with the <laughs> stick. It's like picking
0: up Bernie's, but for RPGs. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. They're like <laughs> okay, it's really fair. hard
2: reaching down with the stick. Pick him back so, up like, so we can hit uh, him again. I'm
1: not really a huge Star Ocean fan, so I didn't know it was still quite active i thought it was i thought it was like a dead franchise or at why least, like, star
0: ocean not valkyrie profile nobody cares about star ocean i, I know a couple <laughs> people who cared but i i
1: would have preferred a valkyrie profile.
0: you care about star ocean send me an email at cat at bloodgotpod.com or a dm <laughs> on twitter at the <laughs> underscore catpod and tell me why you love this series or an angry at on twitter because i'm sure you're going to get a couple of those i went i so okay when i was putting together the pantheon i was like well maybe we should stick a star ocean on here and I looked at the rankings of Star Ocean. Everybody put Till the End of Time at the top of those rankings. Mm-hmm. Till the End of Time is horrible. That's not a good game. <laughs> oh dear! It's one of the most boring RPGs I've ever
1: played. Are you kidding me? Wow. No, I I've, I'm really not into Star Ocean. I don't know a lot about it, so that's why I said, well, I think it smells special, but I don't think I don't know if that's going to happen.
2: You know, excited for that non John non John Bon Jovi that's at the helm of that <laughs> ship,
0: doing doing like his Cut weird Rain pose. Blade. I'm sorry.
2: It's. I I couldn't even tell what was really going on, and also the footage they showed was a little rough. And I thought yeah. it was the stream at first, and then I watched it on multiple different videos and streams, and I was like, "Oh no, that's that's just the footage." Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. oh no, that's just footage. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, I I don't know. It, me as a person who has only ever played the demo of Till the End of Time and was like, "That was an RPG, sure," and never touch the series again that did nothing to sell me on it being a reason to want to play the series and i don't know i'm happy for any star ocean fans who maybe have hope at this point but (laughs) I don't know. we are going to make enemies with the Star Ocean subreddit now.
1: Well, who knows? You know, this whole uh, other than Eric, you and I weren't really big into to Tales, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, Tales is actually pretty cool. Maybe this will be the same thing with Star Ocean. Tales was know.
0: always better than Star Ocean. Okay. <laughs> okay, Mate, now you're yeah, speaking okay, my that's language. Fair. But <laughs> it was. <laughs> Vesperia and Tales of Destiny mm-hmm. always immediately better than Star mm-hmm. Ocean. By the way, go listen mm-hmm. to our Tales rankings uh, over on the the free feed.
2: Okay, so there is a
0: Star Ocean subreddit. There are 4,000 members and 45 are online right now. So there are 4,000 people who care enough about Star Ocean to actually go into the subreddit.
2: (laughs) To yell about it online.
0: (laughs) Guess how many (laughs) comments the video for Star Ocean 6 got?
2: 18. I'm guessing 18. The answer is (laughs) Wow.
0: (laughs) Really? Three people. We're very excited about Star Ocean 6.
1: I would think it would get more of a reception than that. People seem to be like, oh boy, Star Ocean, that's kind of cool.
2: It's in the weirdest place as an RPG though. And I feel like we're at this stage where a lot of like storied RPG franchises are going to have to start sinking or or floating, you know, like you've got to be able to jump into this new age of action RPG and big production budget RPG that's coming around or i or, or you know, jump back to the HD, two D stuff. You know, it's it's going to be one or the other. So okay,
0: so I lied. It had ninety eight comments. I was looking at a oh, different one. Oh, okay, you, you
2: had me wondering
1: for a <laughs> second there, Kat.
2: I was like, oh, that's grim. I mean, this, that's very
0: grim. Top comment: I can't believe it's six years since the last Trias console game. Hopefully, this turns out good with great sales and will make it possible for Trias to return to its former glory and finally make Valkyrie Profile three herist. See, I like this person. Okay, yeah, now we're talking. <laughs> A so, lot of people want Valkyrie profile. And everybody's really mad because it's also coming out on Xbox and PC. Because people don't. are
2: weird. I have never really understood weird. that thing. Console Wars are over, y'all. Like, who cares? Play video games.
0: I still feel skeptical and I hate the way that it looks, but I'll be on the lookout. Also, people did not like integrity and faithlessness,
2: also. Oh, no, no. No. Why does Star
0: Ocean Integrity and Faithlessness get so much hate?
2: It's a bad name, first of all. I'm just going to put that out it, there. It, it's not a terrible. good name Here's for what Bash the
0: Stampede 121 has to say. I love that all right.
2: name. Yes, yes.
0: Very, very 2000s. <laughs> I played it as the first Star Ocean game earlier this year. It's okay. I'd give it a 6 out of 10. The negative things that stood out to me were an interesting story. A battle system that encourages literally just spamming your most powerful moves random difficulty spikes lack of cinematic cutscenes characters that feel flat and generic and uninteresting side quests i wonder if we ever actually reviewed it over on blood god like i'm sure i don't think we ever covered it on us gamer
2: oh no that was probably one that we looked at and we're like that's the thing about this well that's the thing about star ocean assign
0: out a 80 hour rpg to poor mike
2: yeah, we've got like four people at any given time who can review a game, and they're already busy with like twelve other games. So.
0: <laughs> well, hey, like Star Ocean has redeeming qualities.
2: I, I would, I will never, you know, cheer against a a, a fan base that's on hard times. I've, I'm a Tales fan. I've been there. Yeah. Uh, now I am I'm basking in the glow. <laughs> oh, of, poor Nadia. <laughs> <laughs> but it's. You know, everybody wants the underdog story. So maybe this is the underdog story. I'm just going to say they maybe got to work on that dude's look because all I can think about is that dude doing that weird like power stance pose behind that little uh, girl that was piloting the ship. And he's just the weirdest looking Bon Jovi dude. It's (laughs) Mike Williams on Twitter called him like Bon Jovi. And I haven't been able to unsee it since.
0: (laughs) Star Ocean. It's coming out divine force it looks uh, maybe best case scenario it's kind of a, an ease 8 situation which hey ease 8 was good right yeah but it loves great. ease 8 it looks a little bit like that so fingers crossed i hope it's good but also i wish they had made valkyrie profile instead that's okay fair. we
1: can have both we can have both assumptions
0: let's continue on in the news next item shoji megaro has left atlas but it's okay because shoji megaro is going to Continue to freelance. He just wants to go work on indie games as well. Spread the love.
1: I think that's pretty cool because, I mean, he's one of the best in the industry. And I think it's actually awesome that he gets to, you know, spread his ideas across, uh, break out of the, the Persona barrier.
0: I agree. I love Shoji mm-hmm. Meguro's music. He has a distinct style, a lot of fun. Maybe a big reason that we are picking up Persona 5 for the next Pantheon. Which, by the way, if you haven't gotten vote, be... Go over to our Patreon, patreoncom Pud. and go vote there. All oh, it's open to all patrons from one dollar and above, and we can go vote for Infinite Space. Put Infinite Space" over the top, but do it. I think I remember. Was it a hard drive headline along the lines of? uh Gamer discovers they don't actually love jazz, they just love Persona 5. So there you go.
2: (laughs) I thought you were gonna say uh gamer goes to real life Tokyo and is like, wow, this does look just like Persona 5.
0: (laughs) Goes to Shibuya. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Y'all, people are really mad about the N64 emulation on Nintendo Switch. We talked about it ad nauseum over in Nintendo Voice chat. You should go check that out. I'm also on that podcast. And you know what? It's pretty bad. Acarina time. Not great. Mario sixty four, pretty bad. But you know what is okay? Star Fox sixty four. Star Fox
1: sixty four is actually, fine. I was actually looking that up. Like, does it run okay? Yeah. Really interesting. It was, it was so for me,
0: it, it's a game by game thing. Seems to be the issue. So I was talking to Pear, and I was Pear. Apparently, has like four or five. Uh, like N sixty four is just floating around his house for reasons I can't. Discern. Why not? <laughs> I was like, you know, I might buy one of those from you just to see how I feel about it. Cause I would love to play Mario 64 as it was because it's just never felt quite right.
2: Mm-hmm. On I agree. Any other I platform.
0: Agree. It's too bad, but star Fox 60. And maybe like if I played star Fox 64 on a proper N64, I'd be like, Oh my God, I cannot believe how much better this feels than it did on like my PC or whatever. Yeah. In the meantime, we don't really care about the N64 around here. You should go listen to our console RPG quest about it. Cause there are like no RPGs on it. They're like three <laughs> total. <laughs> No, Quest 64 doesn't count.
2: Go oh, what? No Quest 64 content? We did Come talk on.
0: about Ogre Battle 64, but not okay. enough, honestly. We
1: yeah. should get Wah back on here. Yeah. Yeah, we should have another episode with Wah.
0: Wah, I'm going to make a deal with you. You sign up again at the $100 <laughs> level. We'll do a full Ogre Battle 64 deep dive with you. Okay?
1: Come on, we're doing you deal. a favor here. Doing Offer's you a on the solid. Table. <laughs>
0: Alexia <laughs> oh, is next up on here though so very okay. exciting okay but yeah the genesis is fine for the most part i was playing yeah, Sonic on it and having a good time and also it has uh some good games for rpg fans including fantasy star 4 and shining force mm. i'm sure that we'll be getting to at least shining force at some point i have not
1: Tried Shining Force for a very, very long time. I know I played it back when, like you know, emulation was new and hot, and I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna make up for all the Genesis games I missed." But I don't, I don't recall liking it very much. But I might get another try.
0: A lot of people love Shining Force. The graphics are great. Graphics are great. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's a lot like Fire Emblem, but maybe better.
1: Maybe. Oh. Um, maybe. Uh oh. Displeased sounds from Eric.
2: Yeah, no, I'm well, this is now I'm going to put it on the backlog list. So that way, if I'm going to beef, I'm going to beef, so with knowledge and and (laughs) logic, (laughs) I think that's fair.
0: The Final Fantasy V Pixel Remaster is coming to iOS and I assume Steam on November 10th. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nadia puts in the note, please, please, please at least give us controller support square. I know you won't, but please. I just
1: play it on Steam.
2: Yeah, just play it I, on Steam. I, I
1: don't want to do that though. Like I don't like playing games on my computer, so I want to play them on my iPad if I can't play them on my Switch.
2: Steam Deck. That's and where then, it's at.
1: yeah which Yeah,
2: there you go. Not
1: here and probably never coming anytime soon. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of sitting there playing Final Fantasy 4 on my iPad with the stupidest control setups ever cuz I can't use just put in a controller like a normal human being. No, I got to do their tap 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 or use their stupid virtual control stick, which is terrible.
0: That is ridiculous. They, I mean, come on. It's 2021. They have yeah. Bluetooth controller support for freaking Fantasian. Come mm-hmm. on. I can hook up my PlayStation uh,
1: 5 controller to pretty much anything, and you're not letting me do that. You, you mm-hmm. evil, evil people.
0: And finally, the Witcher Season 2 trailer is out. It's coming December 17th. Merry Christmas. Here's a crap load of blood and guts. Henry Cavill is still perfect. Geralt and Jaskier made new friends in jail.
2: Yen stands. We're we're living. We're feasting. It's a good time.
0: Yep. I thought she died at the end of season one. What?
2: No, you can't kill Yen. She only gets no. stronger. Um. Yeah, this is exciting. I, I'm a book reader, and so uh, but by, by book reader, I mean I've read the first book, and now we're getting into the second book, and I'm now having to be like, okay, I'm gonna have to read this book before uh the series comes out. But I'm hearing from folks that have read the series that. It looks like season two is going to start taking some liberties and doing ah, like, like season one definitely took liberties in season some one regards. Took
0: a ton of liberties,
2: but I mean, this one looks like it's taking some like large plot liberties, which you know,
0: the whole fringilla thing was not that. really a thing in the books,
2: right? But i I think there's there is a difference between like you know it seems like they are really taking some steps. And again, I have not read the book myself, so I'm just reading reactions from people who have read the book. So I'm interested to see where this goes uh, because obviously like, hopefully Netflix keeps this going for longer than the three seasons. They normally do. And I would love yeah. to see this eventually catch up to the games. If only because then they have to explain the whole Geralt has amnesia thing, which is <laughs> just the weirdest <laughs> plot thing in the world. But like, like I said, Witcher 2, like you know Wild Hunt is good okay we have all sung the praises of Witcher 3 Wild Hunt we don't need to go out of our way to do so again great video game one of the top RPGs of the last generation it's it's good Witcher 2 also has a very very good plot that I think could really work well in a TV setting and I would love for them to get there because it did not get the praise it deserved at the time so
0: Assassins of Kings
2: it's it's cool. You get like this big dude who could totally be played by uh, Batista and, Hell yeah. that'd be and great. he he would be so good in that role, too. I re- literally want them to get there just so he can play that character.
1: He would probably ask too much for a Netflix thing like that. Be, he'd be great for the role. Though. He's
2: in he's in tons of stuff, though. I mean, he's yeah. in a lot of big stuff like Dune and all that. But I'm sure like he'd sign up for something like that. He'd probably and-
1: enjoy that. I can imagine being a Witcher head.
2: And and Netflix has Netflix money. Come on. like <laughs> Does it ever? Yeah. Well, I
0: made a wonderful decision, decided to actually review Witcher Season 2 on IGN. So you can look forward to oh. my takes on it. Relatively soon, I think. God, it's going to be December before we know it. But yeah, we're looking forward to it. And if you want to go hear us talk about The Witcher, we did an entire watch of Season 1 right when the Patreon started back in January. So yeah, go check it out. All right, that is all the news and what we've been playing. It's time now for the PC RPG Quest. Don't go away. Hey, hey, 16K. What does I get you today? Okay, it's time to continue on with the PC RPG Quest, our ongoing series in which we explore the history of RPGs on its formative console PC. But of course, the PC takes many different forms, as we saw across our previous episodes. Mostly, we've been exploring the North American PCs in the 80s. But now, let's jump across the Pacific. Let's go over to Japan and talk about pc rpgs over there because guess what japanese rpgs weren't just on console no they were not they were on pc as we were alluding to in our dragon slayer episode and hey i have a special guest here to help us out why don't you introduce yourself
3: yeah i am audi pc98 audio on twitter i'm from digital foundry most famously i guess I uh, also run my own localization company called Sakai Project, which does uh, visual novels mostly, well, and also RPGs from Japan to English. And I guess you had to come to Norway to find someone to talk about Japanese RPG.
0: That's how <laughs> it works, right?
3: It does, yeah.
0: Audie, <laughs> tell me, like, why are you so passionate about Japanese PC games in particular?
3: Because I have no friends, cat. That's <laughs> Aww. why. Oh, say that. That's We're your our friends. Okay.
0: <laughs> You
2: got us. We're your friends. Yes, now
3: I do. It's very nice uh, to be here finally. Uh, no, so my introduction to JRPG probably came via the MSX. Uh, I had a neighbor that inherited a Dutch MSX, believe it or not, from a neighbor. And uh, I used to play C64, Amiga, uh, NES when I was a kid. But then circa 1990, uh, my friend Tom moved down the street and he had this fangled little thing called the MSX, which I had never seen before. And uh, one of the games he played on there was a game called Rune Master 2, which is a compiled dice RPG of all things. And it just kind of opened my eyes to a world beyond, you know, the C64 was very European. Uh, Most of the games were very European, which I'm very proud of today. Uh, but <laughs> they are of a special structure and of a special interest. And uh, throughout my life, I just got, uh, specifically via the video game music scene, I got very interested in Japanese video games and very involved. So long story short, uh, that was kind of my introduction into the video games industry in the 2000s was uh, producing and helping out with video game music in Japan. and that led me down this rabbit hole of working with people that were involved with the PC 98 specifically, but also the 88 and the MSX. So just via osmosis and talking to these original developers, um, you know, I became very familiar with the topic of Japanese uh, home computers.
0: And how much of an RPG fan are you?
3: Uh, That's a difficult question. Today, uh, I don't know how much today. It's been a while since I played uh, a full rpg uh, but back in the day i was very invested in them especially when um, i trying to remember kind of my favorites back then but secret of mana was kind of like a formulative game mm. for me it was a game that really taught me a lot about life yes. as funny as that sounds but there was a sense of camaraderie and unity to that game which i don't think has been well enough explored in video gaming or in conversations about Mana um, from Secret of Mana to Second Densetsu 3. I think there's a lot more to talk about there. Oh, I could talk uh, about but... Secret
0: of Mana for, for, like, for
1: years. You <laughs> don't
3: understand.
0: That. And then this episode uh-huh. became a Secret of Mana conversation. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> Good night, everybody. I guess, I guess
3: we need to book another episode for that. Uh, I have Absolutely. lots of stories about that because I used to work with Kikuta and he has a really? lot of opinions. Yes. Um, mm. Oh my god. Okay, projects. we, we, we got to schedule this, cat.
0: <laughs> well, when do we inevitably try to put Secret of Mana in the Pantheon, we'll get audio on here.
3: Yes, uh, I'll get uh, Kikuta as well to share some words.
0: Awesome. Uh, I still talk to
3: him quite a lot. Uh, that would be amazing. But, yeah, but uh, things like that, I was always someone when it came to video games, uh, I was much more into experimenta- experimentation and expression, mm. much more so than just like what's, you know, how interesting is the inventory or anything like this. I was much more into what the actual emotional connection would be which is why I work so much with visual novels today, because that's kind of the ultimate expression of emotion in video game medium. Uh, and I try very hard to produce you know, good visual novels with people in Japan. So uh, yeah, so that was kind of a bit why I loved RPGs, and a bit why I don't play them anymore. It's kind of contained in that <laughs> ah. answer.
0: <laughs> Do you have a favorite RPG? That came out in the 80s on Japanese PCs, PC-88,
3: MSX, either one. Uh, If I have one uh, from that era, hmm, I would have to be kind of boring and say Ease, book one and book two.
0: Mm. That's not boring. Uh, That's a good choice. That's not a bad one. what, What about Ease, book one specifically speaks to you? Is it the bumping into people?
3: So I actually love the bump combat uh, <laughs> because, again, it's very experimentational. And like, yeah. that was a way to because RPGs in the 80s in Japan, like RPGs did not come natural to Japan. It was a very mm-hmm. long, rocky road, uh, as we, I'm sure we're going to eventually get to in this episode. Um, and when you talk about something like East, it's still in a phase where Japanese consumers are getting used to what this could be. And the bump combat was a way to kind of open up the genre further because reflexes and timing and things like this, it can be a pretty big learning curve for people who haven't played video games uh, or, you know, especially when it comes to home computers, the clientele wasn't young children with, you know, superhuman reflexes. Still, Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it was primarily the salaryman or the, you know, fresh out of university teenager young adult and they were not going to be playing games late at night that necessarily required a lot of investment physically so that's one of the reasons why i really enjoyed looking at something like ease it's just looking at that bump combat and of course the music
1: yeah i actually uh interviewed yuji hori some years back and he was talking about dragon quest and he says one of the reasons dragon quest flourished in japan and why he wanted to flourish is because it's not a game that requires really uh, you know, intense reflexes. It's just anyone could move at the speed of a story, basically.
3: Mm-hmm. When I met what uh, he's many years ago now. Uh, for oh, some cool. reason, he kept talking about like the history of nudity in games. Uh, <laughs> I did not bring up this topic, but he did. <laughs> and he's uh, been stewing I was for a while by his, uh, encyclopedic knowledge of this. Uh, but then I also learned of course that he was one of the, uh, kind of, uh, forefathers of that kind of content uh so uh maybe not so shocking but uh you know what San um, definitely is the godfather of the the true japanese rpg right Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. he was someone that looked at ultima Wizardry, all those games and figured out all the things that people don't like in japan like all the things they don't like, about the RPG, let's just strip that out. Yeah. And let's contain it in a much more simple package and take out kind of taking out the fundamentals of what RPGs actually are. Uh, when you look <laughs> at them from like a D and D nature, right? Yeah. He took yeah. that all and threw it in the trash because that doesn't appeal at all. And, you know, then we get dragon quest, which, you know, is basically the beginning. Yeah, and You of, add a, a, splash of uh, you had a splash of, uh,
1: you add a splash of, uh, manga-influenced style from Akira Toriyama, which certainly helped a lot to help the game stand
3: out. Yeah, it was definitely... Dragon Quest was definitely a subject matter of, like, kind of legitimacy coming to video games because you also had the unfortunate uh, human being that is uh, Sugiyama, did the music. And he was a film composer. Yeah, who passed away. Uh, But his music legacy, you can still talk about. And, uh, you know, he was a film composer and, I mean, a classical composer in every sense of the word and that brought a sense of legitimacy to video games as a whole Mm -hmm. which you know that this medium uh transcends now the game centers and this kind of pastime activity you know it's becoming almost you know legitimate i guess you could say
0: you know it's interesting that you mentioned how uh, rpgs did not come naturally to japan which I I think it's interesting just because with the caveat that I'm not Japanese. I mean, certainly Dungeons & Dragons were popular in Japan in the 1980s, and uh, people like Hori and uh, Sakaguchi were fans of games like Ultima and Wizardry. Um, But I'm surprised that a RPG tradition did not uh, evolve kind of independently in, say, the 1970s in the same way that it did in North America.
3: So I think uh, what you're saying is true, uh, but is true for the 1980s with D&D in Japan because uh, you got to kind of, when you look at, I guess to get into the topic of the matter, when it comes to like Japanese home computers and the RPGs on it, when you go back to the 70s, the 78, around that era, home computers were primarily developed in America, like the Apple II, things like this. And yeah. it was uh, exported to Japan and elsewhere in the world. And uh, from there, you also had what I always consider to be kind of the very true beginnings of a role playing game interactively like this is like the text adventures because it places you in the middle of a world and it gives you choice, Uh, rudimentary choice. But like you can go north, you can look west and you can pick up a hat. And while that's not very (laughs) impressive today. You know, we can imagine that this is basically the first VR interaction ever because mm-hmm. people mm. can imagine for someone in nineteen seventy eight typing into the computer, pick up hat, and then the computer tells you that they picked up the hat. It's like you know that's Half Half Life Alex right there. <laughs> uh, but when it came to actual localization and software support in the seventies, uh, uh, what I discovered when I talked to a lot of people who worked on like PC eighty eight and ninety eight was that. These computers, the Apple II, had very simplistic um, ability to showcase Japanese later on. I think they had like a special Apple II uh, W or something that had like Japanese support. But it's, I guess, for lack of a better term, it's not a matter of just changing a system font, right? You need higher resolution and you need a different type of processing to showcase Japanese characters. So the ways of uh, which they hacked in support for this both from a fan standpoint and from official standpoint in an era where you don't have localizers like today by the way i mean the 70s japanese to english and vice versa was not uh common today you know plentiful but back then especially on a technical level uh very limited so that's kind of the origins of then the the home computer because Japan uh, is entering a bubble economy. Uh, mm. There, you know, there's a new middle class with money. There's a new government which needs um, modernization because of all this new money coming into uh, society. And so there was, I think, at the most, there was about forty different manufacturers of home computers by 1980, yeah. um, which is just. Every time I worked in Japan, go to like a place and I see Load Runner, I just remember always seeing like a new <laughs> box with a new machine on it because yeah. there's like <laughs> 35 versions of it. And uh, this was a, obviously a huge problem. So it all got consolidated down to three, about, I mean, unofficially, it was like the uh, Fujitsu uh, FM7, I think it is. And then uh, you had the Sharp X1. Mm-hmm. And then, of course nec's pc 88 which is you know pc 98 and 90 uh, 88 is my love Uh, (laughs) so then you so now you have fundamentally thanks to nec in particular entering the home computer market via a new middle class with money and saying you know this is a new tool you can archive you can maintain your schedule your finances you can do all these things but suddenly you have a new toy in your home, which is very private, uh, mind you, because no one else is going to want to jump on that. It's not like a Famicom later drawn on, yeah. on a shared TV. It's a very private, still to this day, home computers are private space, right? So you have this uh, with Japanese support and, of course, with the ability to process numbers and letters uh, at a much higher grade than the home consoles. And the software that was being produced was primarily from America at this point because you know, software developers in Japan were not that plentiful, and well, most of them were um, coin-app developers, game center developers. Yeah. So a lot of this was funneled kind of back into the in- very specific interest field of programming. Um, again, are talking numbers, talking math, talking word processing, rather than, um, you know, reflex-driven game center-specific uh, you know, bespoke PCBs and all this stuff. So it falls kind of natural. What didn't fall natural though was the RPG because (laughs) that was kind of, you know, when you think about it, text adventures, RPGs, that's the natural platform or natural software for this platform because it is all numbers and Mm -hmm. it is all stats, which is being processed better on the computer faster. Um, But when you talked about D and D uh i remember i spoke to i'm trying to draw the name from the top of my head and i'm terrible with names um i know what my name is uh <laughs> hank uh hank rogers well, what's hank my rogers. name <laughs> a cat uh but and there also is a cat on one of your cameras i saw so yes
2: uh, there are many cats nice on this podcast a, at least yeah, two they, they sneak in and out.
3: <laughs> great. Great. I love animals. Uh, but yeah, Hank Rogers. I met with Hank Rogers a few years ago, many years ago now. And I remember, and Hank is, uh, do you guys know who Hank Rogers is? Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. Yep. Worked so, on for, uh, Bulletproof Software. Worked, uh, hel- helped sell Tetris to the world. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is what he's things. most famous
3: for. Uh, helped to uh, bring agreed.
0: RPGs to Japan and so, to some degree. That's I right, mean, yeah. Exac-
3: exactly. Because uh hank from what i recall when i talked to him he, i think he said he ended up in japan by fluke i think he was just <laughs> like in love with someone that went there or something like he, he really went there just on a whim with no reason and ended up being there for most of his uh young i always life, wondered I how
1: he ended up doing all that stuff in japan like why would a guy named hank be so They
3: don't
1: yeah i don't Dutch. remember involved in japanese rpgs <laughs> Best I don't remember I told too. me. You would play Go with them and yeah, drink whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> if you could yeah. match Yamauchi drink for drink while playing Go with them, like you're probably God and should be in charge of everything.
0: <laughs> There's uh. a good story in Game Over about how I think it was Hank Rogers gave him an actual Yamuchi, an actual NES controller, and Yamuchi was like, well, what do I do with this thing? I don't know if yeah, I actually you want know, right? to play this thing. Come
3: on. <laughs> uh, and if you meet Hank, I mean, it's clear why, because he's super... Uh, charming and uh, friendly i mean he yeah. is a legitimate nice person lives um, in hawaii
0: he's th- living his best life
3: i hope so it's been so many years since i spoke with him and i, I met him like twice i think uh, but i do remember we talked about this specific topic because he is very important to the topic uh, because he went to japan on a whim and one of his favorite hobbies was playing uh, dnd like real life dnd with his friends uh he went to japan and was like uh where do I find people playing D&D here? And he couldn't find them because ah. no one played it. Circa, I think he went there in 79, 1980. And it really was not a thing in Japan yet. Uh, he did, I think eventually, I think he told me he found people like in Osaka and people from Okinawa would know it because of the military. Uh, the right. American military had like stations around there. Uh, but in Tokyo and those surrounding areas... It was extremely hard to find people A that knew about it and then B, if they knew about it, they always had this like weird impression of D D as like, oh, that's like the people that's like sitting by themselves together in the dark room pretending to be other people. It's like <laughs> That's are you pretty talking much about how it those? is. Yeah. 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 which is what it is in essence. But in Japan, it just uh, I wouldn't say criminal, but by that time, the people a few people I've heard about it, I think I'd heard about it in like gossip magazines or something. It's like this nerdy pastime from America where people pretend to be someone else. And, you know, it should be noted that, you know, Japan very much up until the 1980s was still a nation of rebuilding itself. And yes. everyone had a place, you know, as a citizen, you had a place and you had the identity of, you know, a worker, a, a um, a boss whatever you had and so the concept of escapism while today i think one of japan's kind of issues somewhat in the society <laughs> uh escapism in 1980 was not uh based around role-playing escapism as it is today and would become throughout the 80s it was very you had a set role and the idea of wanting to pretend to be someone else uh, didn't fall as naturally it's not that they don't have anything like that But from the concept of D and D, that wasn't natural. Uh, That was something that kind of with the video games like Ultima and Wizardry, which was kind of the only software in 1980 as the new machines were coming out. That that was kind of the only thing you can localize because it's the only big stuff being produced uh, Mm. while they were waiting on their own software houses to start up for this very new venture. Um, And while Ultima Wizardry is popular and you know remain popular in history I always felt like when I look at what the results are of that popularity from Japanese developers and from speaking with them as well I always tend to hear more about what they didn't like and kind of took out when they made their own software right. <laughs> rather than like what was <laughs> right. in you know the early editions Interesting. Uh, so I'm always like it's not that they didn't like it that's me being a little bit funny maybe but like it is always like they were looking from it from a completely different perspective because an american developer a european developer would look at this and be like well you're the main character and you're building yourself up and yes. you are taking here you're, you're the one stepping into this world so it's it's you and that's one of the first things i think japanese um Developers took away was the sense of like ambiguity around Mm. who you are. That was very set in stone in the Japanese role playing games, especially early on. It's like, no, no, you know, you're a Jeffrey and you know, you are this person that's going to save this thing and find the treasure on you know, Panorama Island or whatever. P.S. Your family's
0: dead. That's so funny because on YouTube, I don't know if it's still there, there's this home video from like 1979, 1980 or something like that of a bunch of kids basically pretending to be Gundams or reenacting a scene Mm. from the original Mobile Suit Gundam. And it's so great, you know, and I'm not saying that filmmaking wasn't a thing or amateur filmmaking, but there was definitely an element of escapism there, right? It speaks to how anime in particular was taking off in the 1970s and fandom was Mm -hmm. becoming such a thing around this time. It's well, the difference uh,
2: between like a created character that you've made mm-hmm. whole cloth, like imaginative, versus like something that's already been written and that you're stepping into the shoes of. Yeah, and yeah. Going exactly. all the way back, when I think about those old RPGs, that's the difference—the branch that I see, along with like die, kind of getting cut out somewhere in the mix too.
3: And also, I mean, children in that sense—you know, watching Oksatsu or Gundam or whatever, pretending to be the, you know. Um, yeah, there is a form of escapism, but it also has to do with kind of like a child, the childlike freedom that, like, you're still uh, figuring out how to express yourself. So you're just trying anything, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, these RPGs, especially on the early days of home computer, uh, you're mostly talking about the age group of like 25 to 45, who probably, you know, maybe they still would like to go around and pretend they were Gundams. I'm sure they did. Uh, mm-hmm. But I guess in society, like that just what there wasn't space for that yet i'm sure there is today <laughs> uh and uh so that form of expression is, is expressionism like uh i do think you see more of it eventually again as uh, things change but in those early days when you look at the first few examples uh we mentioned i talked about tank rogers and he you know he was there and when he couldn't find D players uh what he decided to do was to, he made one of the very first rpgs on the pc88 he made a game called mm-hmm. uh black onyx i blanked yes. out uh, black <laughs> onyx uh, i think it's i think that's what his name is i never played it uh but i, I know so. that I it's we a,
1: covered it in one of our uh, rpg quests oh, great. Yeah,
3: yeah yeah and that's hank rogers uh desperately trying people to discover RPG so you can play D&D with them that's all it is uh, uh that's but so it's actually funny. good i mean he's a very creative guy uh but it is still um it's too strict to the RPG like american RPG sensibilities uh so i do f- I, I know that it got some success but it was a very contained success on the home computer platform and then uh, from that little success, I would say that he inspired other people to try their hand on it, but then you start seeing uh, much more experiment- experimental stuff uh, fruit from his. I think that was in 83, though, and there are examples before this, too. You have Falcom eventually comes on the table and yeah. they do a Panorama tour. Uh You have Bokusuka Wars, which is more of a strategy. But again, you look at that, and they're taking everything that made the American RPGs and RPG and take it all away. They put it in a completely different setting with like a robot, like messengers the robots and stuff like this, uh, or just which is make awesome. it, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it is. I mean, uh, as of this recording, I mean, we're still seeing like uh, super robot wars three, uh, 30 and stuff like that. And that all comes from like books of wars and that kind of stuff. So uh it is interesting to just kind of see uh, i think uh, one of you mentioned dragon slayer as well which is an early falcon game
1: yeah yeah we had a big falcon episode uh last week
3: oh awesome so we Uh, went all over the history i used to go drink with the jdk uh, jdk people Uh, oh sweet i love the interesting bunch throughout the years you've you've had some
1: good drinking partners i need to catch up
3: yes yes uh they're fun uh, throughout the different generations. Uh, the, I've met most of them. Uh, but um, when you look at uh, Dragon Slayer and Romancia and those games as well, I always look at them and people say like, oh, early examples of RPG. And it's like, absolutely. But you look at them and the focus isn't really the role playing, is it? It's mostly like it's
1: very action.
3: It's action driven or maze yeah. driven. It's all about this ingenuity of like figuring out a puzzle or location or focusing right. very much on the a- action aspect. Highlight eventually as well. Uh, primarily goes for like an adventure action uh, structure. So when you look at all those uh, early examples on the '88, um, you find some that try to s- adhere a little bit more. Uh, to like the advanced dungeon Dragons eventually and stuff like this. But I always look at them, it's like, yeah, they are role playing games, but when I analyze them, it feels like it's trying its best to be everything else but an RPG in the middle of it. Like it's still right. trying to be a side scrolling, like uh, uh, Romancia is like uh, side scrolling um, action. And like uh, there was a Tower Draga, which is like a yeah. semi RPG thing on our ar- arcade. So, that's an attempt of like bringing a smaller, compact adventure with some RPG elements. So, you just see throughout that, that Ultima and Wizardry, these American and European efforts, uh, they, they become popular out of the necessity of putting out software so that people get used to their computers and get familiar and comfortable with them. Because whenever you have a platform, you're going to have, you know, pastime software on it, regardless of how much you want to fight it. People are going to get bored and want to do something else. And it's important still to kind of keep them loyal to that platform. NEC wouldn't want you to just buy one computer. They're going to make more. So it's very important for them to get, you know, that infrastructure in place.
0: Yeah. You mentioned that you're really passionate about the PC-88. What about the PC-88 in particular really draws you in?
3: So PC-88, also actually more 98, I have to Mm -hmm. say, uh, just because I worked with so many people that were involved in 98. So I just kind of come to love it via them. (laughs) Uh, Also, I discovered it in the 90s myself. Uh, But uh, what I love about... 88 and 98. It doesn't matter. It can be any of these home computers. What I love about it, though, is that it was very much like here in Europe with the C64. It was the very first time that young people were able to express themselves via a completely new medium and open up basically new worlds of any kind with very little limitation considering, you know, what we had. Yeah. So... When it comes to like the eighty eights especially when you look at the Dojin Soft that's on it, it's just incredible to see that a lot of the stuff isn't f- famous, a lot of it wasn't even successful, but you can see such creativity and just passion throughout all these different types of software from the most meandering to the most famous. It's just kind of I love. I love when people express themselves. I love when people tell stories. I've always yeah, loved this in any media. I read the books a lot and I watch a lot of film as well as video games. And I'm always someone that rather than the most bombastic action game, I don't really connect so much with. It can be cool though. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but uh, like uh, I always come back to this game, but another world or out of this world. Oh, I love out yeah. World. out of this world. It's yeah. My Favorite game of all time. And the reason wow. for this is just that that was the reason why I joined video games to begin with was when I played that and I knew I was about 12 years old and I just knew that this was like the future for me because yeah, yeah. the, the minimalism uh, created the most expansive, incredible world for me mm. because it was telling me nothing, but my, you know, it gave me enough that I, you know, filled it out myself. It gave me enough blanks that I could fill in.
1: That's a very, uh, it's a very haunting game, isn't it? Like the atmosphere is is unmatched, I believe.
3: Unmatched today, absolutely. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that, the reason for that is that when you are not, when it is the minimalistic approach from graphics to backgrounds to gameplay, uh, when you're not given more than you need, it it is exactly what you need. But the reason why it becomes haunting is that it's your own personal fears and impressions that mm. is filling in that game mm-hmm. so everyone ha- I'm, I'm sure if i talk to you about out of this world or uh, pc88 software that's what i'm supposed to be talking about if i talk to you about these games that are doing so much with so little i think we actually are talking about very different games in in some ways because i think your impressions are going to be very different from mine but we're still yeah. playing the same base game and when i look at pc 88 uh in 98 early 98 uh there is a lot of this as well where the technology isn't there to give us everything but you don't need everything and yes that mm-hmm. that kind of freedom and limitation creates a lot of interesting results
2: yeah like we we saw this even recently we've talked about dungeon encounters on here which is like yes. almost feels like okay. a harkening back to some of that stuff in a way and like the way that it's also directed and focused and also, you know, like you're saying, constraint breeds creativity in some ways. And you have to come up with creative solutions to how do we make this feel like an adventure when we can't, you know, render giant 3D forests and dragons and stuff like that.
3: But then you so quickly realize that you don't because mm-hmm. we can render that find within right. our own imaginations.
2: You've got a computer and... up in your brain already.
3: <laughs> oh yeah. Mine's blue screen. Uh, mine's pretty updated by now, but it still works.
2: Mine not uh, on but... Windows 7.
3: <laughs> You're right. Oh I go further back than that. I'm always on a boot like <laughs> Windows 95. 95, baby. Uh, yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> uh, we're so old. Uh but uh when you uh, yeah Dungeon Explorers is such an interesting game because I was very frustrated with that game's uh announcement and discourse Mm. because it all relied on like it's uh no one used really the word of minimalism it just said it was kind of like there are no graphics uh right right and i'm just kind of like yes there are and there's a lot more to this than what you're saying but Mm -hmm. absolutely uh, people just kind of latched on the fact that like oh it's this he must have been demoted Right. when he has to make this kind of. De- and <laughs> and we were uh, saying think, that's his perfect project, yes. that's his
1: passion project, right? Yeah, now. right. It's it's, he wants.
3: I would think that that's everything that I think Squares he put everything numbers. he learned into this, yeah. and mm-hmm. that's all he needs. That was all he needed to do. And I, when I played it, I was so happy. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. the best game or anything, uh, but it's a return to this kind of design sensibility that an early uh, hoodie. Or mm-hmm. something like uh, Kenji Ino would have made that game. You know, like mm-hmm. people like this is what I miss in the industry
2: today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm vibing with you so much right now. <laughs> this is <laughs> all I have been like, like yelling about for the past couple of weeks. It's great. Well,
3: it's the thing of like, it's. I, I think we're suffering from the same creative like exhaustion that like Hollywood and these kind of movies are going everywhere. Where. Mm. We, we are lacking the individual in these projects again. And to bring this back to the 88 piece, mm-hmm. 88 again, uh, I'll try my best to uh, bring us back on topic here, but uh, <laughs> you know, it is all about like this individual creative vision to create brand new types of software at this early stage, which is so interesting because you find so much done right then that you know still to this day we're you know and when it comes to systems and ui and all these things it's not it's still not perfect but so many people had such great ideas in 1981 and 82 mm-hmm. and great gameplay ideas and great story elements i mean when you go into something like visual novels eventually which mm-hmm. can sometimes include rpg elements um or vice versa more more likely uh Yeah, the just form of expression on these Japanese home computers uh, were unlike anything else, because people were so amazed by the fact that they could visualize their creativity in this sense. And the home consoles were very um, they were very structured. They had their own. uh, Mm -hmm. You had to go through the big companies to kind of get on there. The home computers didn't have this. They, they had a direct line with consumers, which is why yes. they were so expensive as well, because it was like mm-hmm. 10,000 yeah. yen for a game. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it is that direct input to the game and direct communication with consumers that makes this a wonderful era, a wonderful mm-hmm. era of expression. And we had this in Europe as well on Commodore 64. Hmm. So, which I'm sure we can do on our Commodore 64 RPG episode, which has like two. Yes. <laughs>
0: In the meantime, there was also the MSX. And I think for a lot of console gamers, the MSX was sort of this interesting myth because you'd hear about games like Metal Gear being on the MSX. Or I believe even Final Fantasy was ported over to the MSX. Yeah, it was yeah. It. And actually, it's... it's uh
1: msx is not great at scrolling uh so it's uh, kind of chunky but it has a soundtrack like uh that's just absolutely fantastic it's really upgraded it's really nice it's like just a big
0: it. old keyboard
3: but Damn. Damn. Right. <laughs> 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 Yeah, depending on which uh, version you have yeah the sound capabilities of the msx if you have like msx audio or moon sound or you know, SCC from Konami could sound incredible. Yeah, sound, so, Konami um, was a
1: wizard with sound. I We just oh, not appreciate it yeah. enough. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have stories about that, too.
0: What <laughs> does MSX actually stand for?
3: Oh, no.
1: Uh, what does it stand for? Here's the thing. I had no idea that MSX was actually developed by Microsoft and ASCII Corporation. Yeah, it's
3: uh, Microsoft and So Microsoft
0: ASCII. X? But it's not, it's not Microsoft is the thing that that was
3: like an was urban
1: the ms could be microsoft and the x to be like kind of assy you know just that sound i don't know it's just a guess
3: do you have the answer cat
2: I, I am looking this for this answer quiz? right now i'm looking like i, I have think no I idea looked, okay because ah. i did
1: the notes and i didn't really see anything so i according,
2: was not
3: close enough to my keyboard to look so you have to tell me
2: according to wikipedia Leading source oh. on the matter, <laughs> uh, the the meaning of the acronym MSX remains a matter of debate. Uh, in 2001, Kazuhiko Nishi recalled that many assumed that it was derived from Microsoft Extended, referring to the uh, built-in yeah. Microsoft Extended Basic, while mm-hmm. others believed it stood for Matsushita Sony. Uh, mm. Nishi said that the team's original definition was machines with software exchangeability. <laughs>
3: I would Which, find the last like one, that one uh, the, prob- most. the last yeah. one is probably the most, uh, most likely unlikely, uh, Matsushita oh, Sony would not be likely just because like, uh, the MSX is interesting because that is, a, we talked about this earlier, right? Where there was like 40 different machines in the early 80s. Yeah. Uh, it gets consolidated down to three main ones in popularity, but not necessarily in, you know, Uh, market penetration such there was still a lot of machines being produced and then Microsoft uh, makes this kind of standardized spec which um, the manufacturers can follow. There's still differences between them but the idea is that you can exchange software between any branded MSX machine. Right. uh, Whether making them cross compatible or backwards compatible depending on what era you're making it in and uh I, the msx was no myth to me I, as i mentioned you know i came to discover rpg via msx2 uh but uh, and it did actually have here in uh, europe in spain and in the netherlands it was actually more popular than the uh at least the cpc i don't know about c64 necessarily but the msx was pretty big in spain and the uh, netherlands but when I look at it though, so it's an interesting machine, but for the majority of its games, I find it to be more of a port system. Like I see I, a I lot. I noticed of ports. that when I was putting mm-hmm.
1: together notes that there were. Uh, whereas the PC-88 was the originator of a lot of RPG franchises, most yes. of those were just ported to MSX. There were a few, uh, like there were a few notable franchises, like Castlevania got a start, didn't it, as Haunted Castle or Vampire Kill or whatever
3: on the actually. Yes, yeah, so yeah, that's an interesting. It's not really a port though. It's like an early,
1: yeah,
3: uh, open ended or like a, it, almost a Metroidvania you know, in its own right. Yeah, almost. if you. Yeah, that's right. That term, Metroidvania. <laughs> oh, uh, no, that term. But uh, I know, uh, but uh, uh, yeah. So I mean, the uh, NEC uh, PCs and the MSX both. I they're both based on the C80 processor. And so there are, you know, porting isn't necessarily of the world, but whenever I look at MSX port, especially in MSX 1, there are a lot of drawbacks to doing it on the MSX. Yeah. Um, But what made the MSX uh, profitable and popular was the fact that, kind of similar to what 3DO wanted to be doing in the 90s, is that, you know, when you do this thing where you have, You create a spec template and you let manufacturers fill the market with it. Uh, What you're doing is that you're creating like a consumer-based competition and you're driving prices down because there are a lot of different manufacturers. You can do a lot of different things as long as it follows uh, the cross-compatible nature of it. Uh, Some are better than others, but by and large, the software is going to run regardless of which one you have, that's the important part. And that made it very competitive in pricing. Uh, where, because, uh, uh, we didn't even talk about how much these computers cost, but I think an NAC computer, a PC 88 would probably run you about $10,000 in 1981. Uh, So that's before inflation. (laughs) Uh, And then because the games were produced for a very specific lower uh, popular market, uh, the games were sold at about 9,000 to 10,000 yen. So say $110 about because, you know, it was a more adult uh, consumer base with more money. And so you make expensive games at a lower uh, production rate to make back your money. Uh, The MSX is different because you have a market penetration that is higher because there's competitive pricing on the machines themselves. Uh, You can manufacture on a much cheaper floppy disk and also cartridges. Uh, So, and they actually, I mean, Microsoft actually went towards uh, the gaming community or developers and said like you know you have something comparative here to uh, game centers and uh, eventual home consoles. It's a little bit early still to compare them. But you know the MSX and the Famicom were always in the kind of creative or I guess uh, at least from a western standpoint today you see all these famicom games on um, MSX and just compare them. nova was' necessarily like that, but there was the option. And that was the important part is that unlike the NEC computers, which were getting visual novels, adventure games, and fairly mature sensed RPGs, the MSX was getting game center experiences like, you know, Hyper Olympic and Antarctic Adventure in these actual yeah. action mm-hmm. games, which were responsive enough. Uh, it doesn't have scrolling hardware, but it has ways still to. Uh, change screen fast enough that you can have something similar or just one screen experiences that uh, makes it closer to a gaming console in that sense
0: so we kind of have to finish start wrapping up but the question (laughs) i kind of have in my mind is what did the pc88 and the msx ultimately mean for japanese rpgs because We hear so much about the the console RPGs of the 80s and the 90s and how they uh, spurred, you know, the golden age of Square and all of that. But you also hear people say that, you know, companies like Falcom were incredibly important and incredibly influential. But especially in North America, where those games aren't as well known, I I sort of feel like uh, maybe that's, not as well appreciated. So
3: I kind of want to get your take on this. Without it, you don't have Dragon Quest and you don't have Final Fantasy because you have to have that foundation in what, you know, because Woody, as I mentioned, you know, he came from, uh he he was someone that like sent in software through competitions and magazines and stuff. That's how he entered the industry, right? And he was always looking at the ideas that came from popular software like Ultima, like the text adventures, And he looked at something like the RPG and saw what Falcom saw what Koei because Koei was like, um, perhaps the most important. Uh, I think Koei is more important than Falcom in the early days because they were doing so much like experimental RPG stuff. And then Koei, uh, Falcom comes afterwards and kind of, um, shines it up they make it better <laughs> to say it like that <laughs> but ultimately you're looking at the fact that without these early days of figuring out what because role-playing games to a japanese is means different things than what it meant to an american uh, for an american role-playing is and was always kind of tied to the dnd nature of it very much you you in the center point of this conflict this world this you know setting uh whereas in the japanese rpg we're starting to see way more and more the this, this kind of uh fairytale adventure that you were simply taking part in you were yeah. controlling and interacting with but it wasn't necessarily about you so without laying all these foundational notes to rpgs on the home computers you don't have Dragon Quest, which eventually becomes the Japanese RPG. So it is, in many ways, the most important part of the history, because you you start there. uh, You don't go anywhere without it. Uh, But I do think someone like Falcom, uh, as important as they are, uh, they still play to a much smaller audience until, I'd say, the late 80s, uh, when they kind of took off. and. So, they were, I think Salcom was constantly someone that was studying what was kind of the essence of what people enjoyed about RPGs and fine tuned uh-huh. it towards uh, a little bit more of a more mature audience, by the way. It wasn't so much for children. Um, yeah. Which, you know, was really all it needed to be for Dragon Quest, was introducing children to the actual RPG genre.
0: And that is Japanese PCs in the 80s. We managed to cover all of it. 45 minutes. Isn't that amazing?
3: Uh, In a nutshell. In In a a nutshell. nutshell. (laughs) A bridge version.
0: In all seriousness, though, it was a very interesting time for video games in Japan, in North America, in Europe, and many wonderful franchises got their start in this particular period. If you want an even more in-depth look, go check out our Dragon Slayer episode from a couple weeks ago in Xanadu. All of that good
3: stuff. Santa do.
0: So essential.
3: Yeah, yeah. Falcom, you know, the reason why we didn't talk so much about them is probably, as you say, you know, they kind of require their own little space. Uh, mm-hmm. Because in the whole picture, I think they become much more important eventually. But in the early days, they're still uh, formulating what the Falcom game is. Mm-hmm. What do
0: you think was the most important Japanese developer on PC in the 80s? If if not Falco.
3: Uh, Koei. Koei mm. by far. Koei was so instrumental in getting... Koei worked very closely with uh, the PC manufacturers as well. And uh, without them... Because uh, they were such a... I mean, it was such a respectable company from very early on. And I think uh, today... I don't, what is Koei doing today? Uh, they're Koei Tecmo now.
0: Well, they're really close to Nintendo these yeah, days. Yeah, I was going to say,
2: they doing they do a lot of everything. work on the side. Yeah. yeah,
3: right. Yeah, they're actually really Koi's... good these days. <laughs> yeah, it's always been a great developer.
1: Oh, I mean. yeah. I think they did the Dragon Quest Builders games, didn't they?
3: Well, did they? Okay, oh, so that so so came Fire Emblem full
2: Three Houses. Yeah, Three Houses is the one that they... I Warriors.
1: On. So, yeah, that's right. They're doing some pretty good stuff.
3: They're hanging
2: in there. Oh, the Warriors yes. games.
3: So, the Koei... becomes such a huge part of the pc nature of japan uh so i would say that they were the most important throughout the 80s Uh, there are many others that come uh in 87 88 when you really start looking at like the boom uh but in the early days koei uh without them you wouldn't have just just from a business standpoint you wouldn't have what we were talking about now because they 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 were there and they helped lay all the foundational work for this uh, business to actually go around.
0: Well, now it's time to continue into the 90s, and there's so much to cover in this particular period. We might have to make it a three-parter, but Audi, we'll have you back to talk about the PC-98 and all that wonderful stuff that was happening in the 1990s. In the meantime, if you haven't listened to the rest of the console RPG quest, we did the 70s. We did an episode in the 80s with Jason Wilson. It's been a lot of fun so far, and our journey will continue. And, of course, there's also the console RPG quest where we were talking about all of the wonderful consoles like the NES and the Sega Genesis and all of those other things. The yeah. Yeah, sure the other there guys. are some <laughs> other consoles out there somewhere. <laughs> some PC Engine thing. Some PC Engine. I hear that there's but a very confusing name for a console, I might add. But. I do have to agree with that. <laughs>
3: Ah, uh, there's actually reasons for it, but the one episode that I keep begging Cat to do with me is PCFX. So, oh, man. Ooh.
1: challenge accepted, Cat.
3: Oh, challenge accepted. I, I love accepted. the PCFX. So, and that that is the RPG system.
0: Adi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Please promote some things.
3: Oh. Uh, well, of course, uh, you can find the games that I work on at sakaiproject.com or sakai.games for consoles, uh, where we localize, uh, among other things, RPGs from Japanese to English. Uh, it's been my passion project for 10 years. I work with incredible people over there, so would be very happy to hear some of you play them. And, of course, go subscribe to Digital Foundry, where uh, John Lindman and myself do all the retro content together. Uh, I joined them officially earlier in the year to do retro content. And it has been a an amazing uh, rediscovery of the video games industry because uh, uh, somewhat famously I left it due to uh, depression a few years ago. So it's been oh. wonderful to come back. Yeah. Heck yeah.
0: Glad you're having fun coming back. Mm-hmm. Retro is, con- the retro content it- – Digital Foundry is second and none as well. So. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. really, really
3: good. Oh, thank you. Uh, we work very hard on it. So uh, yeah, definitely go check out DF Retro and uh, check out what we have to talk about. Not so much RPG yet, but uh, we do have Cat earmarked to come help us <laughs> with uh, some RPG stuff.
0: One day soon I will be in, in Germany. I'll actually oh, go so. hang out
3: with John. It'll be great. Yeah, yeah. It'll be wonderful.
0: Can
1: I come too? Of
3: course. <laughs> Bring your cats. <laughs> All of them. All of them,
0: and of course you can find me on twitter at the underscore Nadia nadia's at nadia oxford and eric is at cmoosi, s-e-a-m-o-o-s-i you can follow acts of the blood god on twitter at blood god pod we're also on instagram and we have a website bloodgodpod.com if you enjoy the show check us out on patreon patreon.com slash blood pod our subscribers get access to episodes a week early and ad-free and also access to all of our bonus content. And good golly, there is a lot of it. Next month, we're going to be ranking all of the Cowboy Bebop episodes. Of course, there's also Charlene Dropouts. we got the Pantheon episode for Parasite Eve coming up. And it's looking like we're going to be voting in Persona 5. Hell yeah. Pantheon episode. So lots of amazing Acts of the Blood God content to keep you busy through these cold, cold holiday season we'll be back next week as always and the pc rpg quest will be back next month but until then for nadia eric audi and myself thanks for listening happy adventuring
2: Those were the day's next end